All right, our uh, Redeemer kids are free to go with uh, Mr. James and Miss Kelly. James, what are they learning about this morning? Hagar, Hagar and Ishmael? All right. All right, let's pray real quick for our kids as they go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for children, God. They are a blessing and uh, a great responsibility. And Father, I pray that this morning as they learn about your promise and how in so many different ways it has been fulfilled in Christ um, as, in, as they think about in the Old Testament the things that pointed towards Christ, I pray that your spirit, God, would even now at a young age be hovering and working on their hearts. And God, I pray we would see many children come to know Christ through the ministry of this church. And pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. We're going to be all over Philippians this morning. I'm going to kind of use Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13 as a launching pad, but we're going to be skipping all over uh, the book of Philippians this morning. I'm going to be talking about Christian contentment, what it is, how do we get it. A few weeks ago, I was having a conversation with one of my coworkers. We were basically making small talk about our work schedules, having to get up super early to come to work, just one of those conversations. At one point in the conversation, she made what I thought was a very telling statement. She said, I don't like feeling obligated to do things. I don't think I will ever be able to get married because I hate having obligations. The statement, I believe, really captures the way a lot of young people think about life. We have been so indoctrinated with the belief that life is all about personal freedom and choice, and therefore we should do everything in our power to structure our lives in a way that allows us the most personal freedom and the most options. The thinking goes like this. I have the option to commit to something, to do something. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a degree. Maybe it's a church. Maybe it's a relationship. But... If I commit to that one thing, that means I'm obligated to fulfill certain responsibilities related to that thing. Well, first of all, that doesn't sound fun. And second, if I'm committed to that thing, that means I don't have any other options. And what if, and this is the real crux of the issue, what if there is something better out there for me? What if I decide to major in psychology, but then decide that sociology is really what I want? What if I ask my girlfriend to marry me, but then I meet my soulmate later on in life? What if I decide to move to Chicago only to find out that I hate snow and cold weather, and I would rather live where there are mountains or an ocean? What if, what if? What if? I have so many options. And if I commit to any one of them, I won't have any more options. I'll be stuck and I won't be content. 
with this kind of thinking, where does our contentment lie? It lies in our circumstances. A lot of us here today are students, probably in some sort of transition in your lives. You live here, you go to school here, but you're mainly thinking about what comes next. Up to this point in your life, you have lived looking forward to the next thing. When we're kids, we look forward to going to school. Why? I don't know. My four-year-old is obsessed with school right now. She can't wait to start school. Maybe they look forward to going to junior high, then high school, then college, then maybe grad school, then a real job, then marriage, then children, maybe. Because once you have children, there goes a lot of options. And then so on and so on. So we live most of our lives in discontentment without even realizing it. Because we're always looking ahead. I can't settle here. I can't be content here because I'm looking forward to the next stage. If I can just get through this stage of my life and get on to the next thing, then I'll be content. If I can just get through this semester or get this degree or get this particular job. But what happens when we get there and we're still not content? What happens when our life circumstances aren't enough to keep us content. And guess what? They won't be. In our natural sinful condition, we will always look for something other than Christ to fill our deepest longings for joy and contentment. But the Bible has a lot to say to us about this subject. Like I said, we're going to look at Philippians 4, 10 through 13, but that's just going to be a launching pad for thinking about this issue of contentment. So let's read those verses. So, the Apostle Paul, the letter to the Philippians, he gets to the end of the letter, chapter 4. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. What's he talking about here? He's talking about Epaphroditus, who was a servant of the church at Philippi, um, goes to Paul. Paul is in prison, probably in Rome when he wrote this letter. Okay, Epaphroditus comes from the church of Philippi, brings Paul a gift. We don't really know what it was, probably some, some sort of monetary gift, um, a material gift. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Now at length you have revived your concern for me. I know you were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Here he says, now you've had this opportunity 
Thank you for sending me this gift. As we think about Christian contentment this morning, I want us to know three things. The first thing about Christian contentment that I want us to know is that Christian contentment accepts and delights in God's providence. I'm convinced that most of our inward anxieties and lack of contentment stems from a false view of the providence of God. Now, what do I mean when I say the providence of God? Well, the word providence means essentially foresight or making provision beforehand. And because it is God's governance that is in view, it encompasses everything in the universe, from the creation of the world to its consummation. It's inclusive of every aspect of human existence and destiny. I think, yeah, providence then is the sovereign, divine superintendence of all things, guiding them toward their divinely predetermined end in a way that is consistent with their created nature, all to the glory and praise of God. When our hearts grow discontent with our external circumstances, we have failed to remember that everything that happens to us, everything that happens to you, happens because God has brought it about. You are where you are every moment of every day because God wants you to be there. Now, like I said, we're going to use Philippians 4 as a launching pad. Where am I getting this idea of the, of the providence of God? It's not here explicitly, but Paul has unpacked it for us throughout the entire book of Philippians. I'm going to show, we're going to go to three places in Philippians chapter 1 where the providence of God uh, is central to Paul's thinking. So turn back just a couple pages to the first chapter of Philippians. We're going to look at verse, verse 12 of chapter 1. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's talking about being in prison. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So, Paul tells us that his imprisonment is being used to advance the gospel. How? Because the other believers have been bold in proclaiming the gospel without fear. Paul's persecution has served to encourage and motivate others to be as fearless as he was. But, there are also some other people who were trying to make things worse for Paul. They wanted to see Paul suffer more than he already was. Maybe they were even calling for his execution. Maybe they were the Judaizers who were preaching a gospel contrary to Paul's. But when they preached their false gospel, you see, they would have to contrast it with Paul's gospel. So in that sense, they were still making Paul's gospel known. 
Or maybe they were true believers who preached a somewhat sound gospel, but just had some kind of contention with Paul. Maybe he had lost their trust for some reason. Maybe they did not approve of his lack of rhetorical skill. We don't really know. We just know there were people who were preaching the gospel out of love and out of goodwill, and there were others who were preaching the gospel in some sense who were doing it to hurt Paul. But either way, Paul says, Christ is proclaimed. Whether in pretense or in truth, the gospel is being proclaimed. Either way, God in his providence is bringing about the proclamation of the gospel. Paul, you see, was not concerned about his life. Only that the message of Christ was going out. Whether it went out in pretense, whether it went out in truth. Whatever will be, will be. And God's purposes will be accomplished. Notice this example, uh, in this example, that the providence of God, the, the, the confidence that, that Paul has in God's providence encompasses even the sinful actions of other people. People are trying to hurt Paul. This is sinful for them to do this, to want to, to hurt him in prison. But Paul says, let it be, whether in pretense, whether in truth, as long as the gospel is proclaimed. And that's going to become important here in a minute. God plans and purposes all things, including sin, for the good of his people and the glory of his name. The second example of Paul's confidence in the providence of God begins in the next verse, verse 19. Paul says this, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ be honored in my body, whether by life, Or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So here again, Paul is clear that his most pressing concern is that Christ be honored. His confidence is in the sovereign hand of God to bring about his own glorification, whether by Paul's life or by death. Remember what we've seen. We've seen as long as the gospel is proclaimed, whether in pretense or in truth. As long as Christ is honored, whether in my life or my death, doesn't matter. Let the providence of God decide. God decides. Pretense, truth, doesn't matter. Christ is proclaimed. Whether in my life, whether in my death, doesn't matter. Christ be honored. Once again, we see that his confidence is in the sovereign hand of God. Either way, life or death, Paul is content. After all, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The third example of Paul's confidence in the providence of God is in verse 27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you 
or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So here we have the same language, right? Whether I'm with you, whether I come and see you, or whether I'm absent. Whether in pretense or whether in truth. Whether in my life or my death. Whether I'm with you, whether I'm absent. Let the providence of God decide the circumstances, but let the gospel be preached. Let Christ be honored in my body and let the church be united. We see Paul's concern. Paul's concern is for the proclamation of the gospel the glorification of God, and the good of others. And the circumstances don't matter. It's up to God. Let God's providence determine the circumstances. So once again, Paul's concern is for the gospel. He wants the Philippians to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. He wants this to be the case whether he is able to come see them or not. Whatever God and his providential wisdom might determine, his heartfelt desires for the unity of the church and the proclamation of the gospel. Some of you might be saying, okay, Caleb, talking about Christian contentment, okay? What does it mean to be content in Christ? Well, my first point, Christian contentment is acceptance and delighting in the providence of God. Okay, I get this, Caleb, I get it, okay? We need to be satisfied, we need to be happy with God's, God's providence in our lives, whatever situation he puts us in, but what about sin? What do we do with sin? How does sin fit into God's purposes? Surely people's sins aren't governed and purposed by God, right? Somehow, they must be somehow outside of God's sovereign plan for all things surely we can't say that god has a purpose for sin when people raise this objection about the sovereignty of god my favorite question is to ask simply how are we supposed to make sense of the cross if god has no purpose in people's sin how do we make sense of the cross Jesus being crucified on the cross was the worst sin that ever took place. There could be nothing more heinous in God's eyes than to see his only begotten son, the only sinless man who ever lived, being beaten, tortured, and hung up to die as a spectacle. But in Acts 2, Peter preaches this message. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then in Acts 4, we have this prayer from the apostles being made to God. For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The death of Christ on the cross was the worst sin ever committed. And it was exactly 
what God wanted to happen. God governs. God, God's providence and purposes are over all things, including your sin. Now, sometimes this is a hard truth to swallow. Most of us want to believe that when our circumstances are good and favorable, then that is God's design. But when things get difficult or when there is suffering involved, that surely cannot be God's intention. But the Bible is clear in its message. No matter what the circumstances are, God is in control. And his purpose in every situation is to bring about the good of his people. The sanctification of his people and the glory of his name. Some of you might be saying, what if I am where I am because I've messed up? What if I have lived most of my life as an unbeliever and have made horrible decisions that have brought me into a terrible set of circumstances? Or what if I have been a very unwise follower of Christ? What if I've made poor decisions in my relationships or finances and now I'm left trapped in a bad set of circumstances because of my own sin and poor judgment? Surely that's different. First of all, your situation is not any different from what I've already described. If God plans and purposes the death of his own son to bring about the redemption of his people, then your sin doesn't throw God off. Nothing escapes God's eyes. But I have a different question for you. Are you repenting of that sin? Have you confessed those things to God? And are you seeking to live differently? See, many times those who claim to be Christians get themselves into difficult situations that involve hardship and suffering because of sinful decisions on their part, and then instead of repenting of that sin and seeking out a community of faith, they continue to make the same poor decisions and sink farther and farther into discontentment. Now let me be very clear about this. Their actions, if this is you, your actions are still governed under the providence of God. But... If you continue in your rebellion, God's providence will result in God's judgment and not God's blessing. To live a life of continual disobedience and rebellion against God is to prove that you do not belong to Christ. So, if this describes you, then this morning I hope you recognize the dreadful state of your condition. God's providence, God's governing of all things is not good news for you. It is terrifying news. Make no mistake, his purposes are being accomplished in you, but they are purposes for judgment, not for blessings. So let today be the day you turn from those things, turn from those sins, put your hope, not in getting out of your situation, whatever it might be, but put your hope in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. But there are others here, I'm sure, who are seeking repentance. Perhaps you're here and when you look at your circumstances, 
uh, whatever they might be, they are not what you thought they would be. And it's because of poor choices you've made. Remember what I've said so far. Nothing escapes the eyes of God. You are here today so that you might seek repentance and contentment in Christ. Acts 17 tells us that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places that they should seek God in the hope that they might find their way toward him, feel their way toward him and find him. You are here today, whether you are a believer who is in a horrible situation or whether you are an unbeliever who has lived your entire life separated from Christ, you are here now. You are hearing the gospel message. It's going out to you so that you might feel your way toward God and find him. Find contentment this morning. Most of us here, are perhaps, are followers of Christ. But maybe you've been struggling with discontentment for a long time. If so, take heart and remember this. Christian contentment must be learned. Paul says, if we go back to Philippians chapter 4, Paul says in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. Then he says in verse 12, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. This may just seem like a small, insignificant statement until we remember where Paul was when he wrote this letter and what kinds of trials he faced up to this point. Remember, he's in prison, probably in Rome. He will eventually be released, only to be arrested again in a couple years and then martyred for his Christian faith. He has lived the past 30 years in missionary service to God. He has traveled all over the known world at least three times. He has planted countless churches. No doubt there have been many times that Paul has been anxious, angry, discouraged, ready to quit, exasperated, afraid, and isolated. And here he tells us that through all of these experiences, he has learned to be content. So why does he say he had to learn it? Because Christian contentment is not natural. The natural bent of our hearts is away from God. We will all seek to find our contentment in something other than Christ. In the same letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, if you flip back to chapter 2, verse 14, Paul encourages the church at Philippi to do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now, why is this encouragement necessary? Why is it necessary for Paul to say, do all things without grumbling, complaining? Because... The natural condition of man is to complain and grumble about our circumstances. How easy it is for us to grow discontent with our Father's providence. This takes no learning whatsoever. It is the natural bent of our hearts. It is the easy thing for us to do. Have you ever experienced group grumbling? 
Have you ever been around a group of people that did nothing but complain and grumble about their circumstances? I have. It's easy, so easy to just fall in line. It takes one disgruntled person to bring an entire group of people into a miserable state of joyless complaining. But to be, as Paul says, a shining star in the midst of a twisted generation, that takes learning. That takes work and thinking and watching and reading. To be able to think deeper about the world in God's ways takes the Spirit of God changing our hearts so that we can see our circumstances not as something that has happened to us and we are victims of them, but that our circumstances are a gift that has been given to us so that we might shine like stars in the midst of our generation. Our circumstances are gifts. You think of it that way? You think of your job that you hate, the classes that you can't stand, the your roommates, perhaps, that you're rooming with, to get on your nerves, whatever it is, whatever situation. Maybe you're dealing with something way worse than that. Maybe you're dealing with some kind of sickness, an illness. I mean, some of us in this room will probably one day face cancer. How are you going to think about that? Do you see that as a gift? Or do you see yourself as a victim? Do you see your circumstances, whatever they might be, as a gift from God given to you so that you might make Him look glorious? If not, then you have a lot to learn. I have a lot to learn. But how do we learn it? In chapter 4, Paul calls this attitude of contentment a secret. He calls it a secret. So we can never know, right? It's a secret. That's it. We never know. We just move on, right? I thought God was supposed to reveal things to us, not conceal things. But Paul does give us the secret. In fact, it's not a secret in the usual sense we use the word. Here, the word secret simply means mystery. It is something that is hidden to most people but has been revealed by God. If we go back to Philippians 2, 14, we'll see part of this secret. Remember here that Paul encourages his readers to do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world, doing what? Holding fast to the word of life. So how do we go about learning how to do all things without complaining and grumbling, we hold fast to the word of life. Other translations tell us to hold fast to the life-giving word. So what is this word that Paul is referring to? It's the gospel. It is his message, his gospel message. This is the secret. That's it. This is, there's no 10-step program. There's no pill we can take. There's no self-help book we need to read. Paul tells us that if we want to be content and stop living our lives complaining and grumbling about our circumstances, hold fast to the gospel. Now, how does this work? 
Well, just one way it might work is like this. I'm stuck in difficult circumstances, whatever they are. My natural inclination is to grumble, complain, get disgruntled. But before I get stuck in a continual cycle of complaining against the providence of God, I'm going to remind myself of a few things. First, I'm not worthy of anything good from God. I don't deserve good circumstances. I'm a sinner. I have disobeyed God's commands. I have neglected His word and His church. I have loved the things He hates. I have hated the things He loves. I deserve to die. All I deserve from God is judgment, and anything I get outside of that is good news. This is where we have to start. The second discontentment and grumbling begins to rise in your heart, you must remind yourself that you are not even worthy to be alive, much less a child of God. But even though I'm not worthy of anything good from God, while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. The reason this is good news for me has nothing to do with me. Nothing. But everything to do with who he is. Jesus is God incarnate. He is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. And by living a perfect life and being crucified under Pontius Pilate, he secured my redemption. His death on the cross satisfied God's wrath against me. And his righteous life can be imputed to me and my sins can be placed on him. And now the righteousness of God is applied to me through faith. This faith in itself is a gift granted to me by God. And because of this righteousness, I am now filled with the Holy Spirit and experience the ever-flowing, ever-increasing grace of God in my life. I am now free to rejoice in any circumstances, not because I deserve good things from God, but because the most important benefits of God I can enjoy are spiritual, not physical. And nothing and no one can take these spiritual benefits from me. So come what may, I will rejoice. That's how the gospel works. That's how the gospel frees us, unlooses the chains of discontentment from us. It frees us so that we are free to enjoy all of the spiritual benefits of Christ, regardless of circumstances. It's nothing external. This is how Paul can sit in prison at the end of his life after he has suffered and been beaten and shipwrecked and stoned, and he has the weight of all the churches on his shoulders, he can say, I'm content. I've learned. It's taken me a lifetime, but I've learned the secret of being content because my contentment is internal. It's not affected by circumstances. And this gospel truth leads me to my last point. Christian contentment embraces suffering for the glory of God. 
I'm sure almost everyone here is familiar with Philippians 4.13. It's usually one of the first verses Christians memorize. Even many non-Christians would be familiar with it since it shows up on all kinds of things like cards, picture frames, bumper stickers, angel figurines, bracelets, journals, and any number of worthless Christianized trinkets. But how do we usually hear this verse applied? We usually hear it in reference to doing something big, right? Or overcoming some kind of fear or life obstacle. For example, when Tim Tebow takes the field, sometimes we'll see those stickers under his eyes. And they will say, Philippians 4.13. Why? Well, I assume because he's seeking to represent Christ on a national stage as he plays a sport that is very physically challenging. He's reminding the world that through Christ, he is able to overcome his fears and physical, um, um, you know, physical ailments or, you know, problems or physical lacking, as if he had any, um, to play this sport well, right? And to do it to the glory of God. Or maybe we'll hear other Christians quote this verse as they prepare to battle some kind of sickness or prepare to to do something that's very difficult. Now, I have no doubt that this verse can bring much needed and necessary strength in the midst of those kinds of trials, okay? Uh, I'm not throwing those examples out there so I can say that they are illegitimate. They are not illegitimate. But what if Tim Tebow takes the national stage and totally bombs? It's happened. What if the sickness that this Christian is about to encounter never goes away? What if it's cancer? What if there is a faithful Christian who charges headlong into a battle with cancer, quoting Philippians 4.13 the entire time and fights with everything she has only to see the cancer grow stronger, stronger? And eventually take her life. Does that mean that God was not able to give her strength that she needed? Does that mean that God has failed? Does that mean that Philippians 4.13 didn't work? What if you never overcome your external circumstances? Now why am I asking such depressing questions? Because I think that's where Paul was living when he wrote this letter. He knew his life was ending. He knew he was getting old. He knew he could only be arrested so many times and spend so many years in prison before someone decided to end it for him. He had to come to terms with the fact that his life was going to be a life full of suffering. In fact, he makes mention of these things in this very letter. If you look back in chapter 1, verse 20, he says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, 
for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Chapter 2, verse 17, he says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul saw his life as a drink offering to be poured out, spent for others. Chapter 3, verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So we see that over and over, Paul talked about his life as one of intense, prolonged suffering. He knew that he had been called to share in the sufferings of Christ. So when he says he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him, he is saying that he is willing and able to endure any and all suffering that God in his providence might bring his way. And even if his external circumstances never change, he's content. Even if his external circumstances get worse and worse and eventually lead to his physical death, which they did, Paul can still be content in any situation, whether in abundance or in need. Having plenty, facing hunger. I think the reason many of us are able to endure brief hardships or temporary suffering is because we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. We can see that this particular situation, whatever it might be, will only last for a season. And don't get me wrong, that is the grace of God. I mean, thank, thank the Lord that not every hardship we go through lasts forever, right? I mean, that would, that would be awful. But what if you don't see a light at the end of the tunnel? What if there is no end in sight? What if you have nothing else to look forward to in this life? Is Christ enough for you? Is it enough to know him? Must we always be looking for the next big thing? Is the grass really greener on the other side of our circumstances? If our contentment here is not in Christ, will our contentment be in Christ when we get everything that we've ever wanted? Or is Christ enough right now? I'd like to close by reading a portion from the diary of David Brainerd. Uh, David Brainerd was a missionary who lived from 1718 to 1747. He was a missionary to the Native Americans and lived his uh, missionary life in the howling wilderness of the Northeast United States. 
particularly among the Delaware Indians of New Jersey. Brainerd suffered his entire life with extreme depression. This was something that he, as well as his biographer, Jonathan Edwards, acknowledged. On top of depression, he suffered the last six years of his life with tuberculosis. He was expelled from Yale Divinity School for insulting one of his professors, something he apologized for over and over. And even though he sought to be reinstated, he, never, he was never granted it. He was licensed to preach and commissioned as a missionary to the Indians in New Jersey. He slept in the wilderness for years. He coughed up blood for years. He was frequently lost in the woods year after year. And he saw very little fruit in his ministry to the Indians. He eventually died from tuberculosis at the age of 29. Reading just a small portion of his diary, I hope, will give us some kind of picture of the contentment that the Apostle Paul was calling for. This is from Monday, August 15th, 1743. Brainerd says this. Spent most of the day in labor to procure something to keep my horse on in the winter. Enjoyed not much sweetness in the morning. Was very weak in body through the day and thought this frail body would soon drop into the dust. Had some very realizing apprehensions of a speedy entrance into another world. And in this weak state of body, I was not a little distressed for want of suitable food. I had no bread, nor could I get any. I am forced to go or send 10 or 15 miles for all the bread I eat, and sometimes it is moldy, and sour before I eat it, if I get any considerable quantity. And then again, I have none for some days together for want of an opportunity to send for it and cannot find my horse in the woods to go myself. And this was my case now. Through divine goodness, but through divine goodness, I had some Indian meal, of which I made little cakes and fried them, yet felt contented with my circumstances, and sweetly resigned to God. In prayer, I enjoyed great freedom and blessed God as much for my present circumstances as if I had been a king and thought I found a disposition to be contented in any circumstances. Blessed be God. For Brainerd, for the Apostle Paul, there was never an end in sight. In this lifetime. Their hope was not caught up in the things of this world. Their sights were set on things eternal, not things temporal. They did not shy away from responsibility and obligation for fear of missing something better. You don't have to be afraid. If I commit to this now, what am I going to miss out on? Commit. Serve Christ now. Be content now where you are. If you're not content now, your circumstances aren't going to change that contentment. The minute you get what you want, the discontentment's going to rise again. Paul and Brainerd, they viewed their lives as a drink offering to be poured out for the good of others and the glory of Christ. So how do you view yours? 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now as we enter into the time of the Lord's Supper, I pray that this time would be a visual, a tangible memorial, God, reminding us of how you and your Son have poured out your life for us. God, we look at the example of Paul, we look at the example of, of David Brainerd and, and many others, but God, what better example is there than Christ? The one who poured out his life for others, the one who endured suffering, the one who is tempted beyond anything that we have been tempted with. He endured all temptation to the end. So God, now as we observe this as, as a one body, as your church, I pray, God, that the gospel would be fresh on our minds, that it would free us to serve joyfully and willfully for the good of others, for the glory of your name. We pray these things in Christ's name.